morning, but Revelation 14, just to sort of quickly catch us up with a, a very brief review of where we're at in Revelation. Back in chapters 4 through 8, we're, we see a, a scene in heaven and uh, the Father's hand on the throne. There's a scroll with seven seals and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus himself, takes that scroll and opens those seals one at a time and God's plan for the end of human history begins to unfold. When the seventh seal is opened, there are seven angels with trumpets that come forward and they each begin to sound. And at the sounding of each trumpet in chapters 8 and 9, there's every time another cataclysmic event takes place on the earth. And after the sixth trumpet sounded, there was this ominous warning in in Revelation 10 verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. So the seventh angel, the last trumpet, sounds and it's to mark the, the end. The mystery of God will be finished and fully revealed. And that seventh trumpet sounded in Revelation 11 verse 15. It says the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And so just like there were those seven seals and that seventh one was opened and it brought forth seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet, when it sounds, we'll see that it brings forward seven vials or bowls of the wrath of God that's to be poured out on the earth. But We're not quite there yet. In Revelation 12 and 13, John gives us sort of this parenthetical, you know, aside vision. In Revelation 12, he sees, begins to see this historic struggle between good and evil that's happened throughout history as Satan attempts to thwart God's righteous plan. In chapter 13, the tribulation period he describes the the rise of the antichrist and the the wicked false prophet but it's evident their plans will be defeated last time we looked at the beginning of chapter 14 up in verse 1 there is the lamb standing on mount zion exactly where the lord promised through the prophets that the messiah king would come and stand and set up his reign on the earth so that's sort of where we're at. We're at this, this point that the last trumpet in Revelation has sounded, the return of King Jesus to earth. Our text in verses 6 through 20 gives us some details of what's going to transpire at that time. So as we read the text, I want you to note how it's filled with angelic proclamations What's described as a harvest or reaping of two distinct groups which will meet two distinct ends. Revelation 14, starting at verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. First, I think it's important that we note the focus of on the gospel message in verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 describes this another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. John doesn't give us an identity of this angel in his vision. He just said it's a different one than the ones before. He does give its location, however. He says it's flying in the midst of heaven. Or if we had read this in the original Greek, it's in the middle heaven. The word there is meant to describe the place in the sky where the sun reaches its highest point. 
So it's not so much telling this, that this angel is in the, the middle of anything as much as it says that it is above the earth at the most visible point above the earth. And it has assumed that place in order to make this proclamation. It's the job of this angel to preach, John says, the everlasting gospel to all those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is interesting because declaring the gospel is the job of God's people. He's given that task to his church. And let me just say, to my knowledge, the only other time where there is an angel given a similar task to this was at the birth of Jesus when one appeared to those shepherds and said, I bring you good tidings, or euangelion, the gospel. I bring you good news of great joy, which is to be to all people. This word gospel is simply the good news. Now, there's a couple of strange ideas that arise from the, this verse. One is that some people will say, well, this angel is declaring the everlasting gospel, but that's different than the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is that God himself was born of a virgin in entering humanity to to live perfectly, to die vicariously, to rise victoriously from the dead on behalf of sinners to reconcile them to God so that all who would repent and turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus would be saved. They would have everlasting life. That's the gospel of Jesus. That is the everlasting gospel. It is eternally true. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples in the Olivet Discourse when he was talking about the end times, he says in Matthew 24, verse 14, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So in some ways, we could say that this angel declaring the gospel to, at the end of verse 6, every nation and kindred and, and tongue and people ensures the fulfillment of that promise of Jesus. The second strange idea that comes from verses 6 and 7 when it's removed from the greater context is the idea of universal salvation. Universal salvation or universalism is the idea that in the end, God's going to ensure that everyone hears the gospel and everyone will be saved. Just to point out two of the many problems with that idea. First, clearly, that's not what's happening in Revelation 14. In verses 10 and 11, there are some who are condemned to fire and brimstone and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever. Second, that view is a misunderstanding of the essential nature of the gospel itself. The gospel is indeed good news for those who will hear it and believe but it is also dramatically bad news for those who would rather continue in their sin. The gospel, as God has designed it, as it is declared, is intended by God to draw some and to repel others. In fact, Paul describes the gospel proclamation as he writes his second letter to the church at Corinth, and he describes it as a, a smell, as a scent. He says, to one, we're the aroma of death unto death, and the other, the aroma of life unto life. Even if 
the gospel is universally preached, which it appears to be to, quote, them that dwell on the earth, John says at this point in time, that does not mean that it is universally accepted. There's little of anything to suggest that the gospel message is widely accepted here. In fact, throughout Revelation, even when those moments come where the sinful world sees the horrific events of the tribulation as the direct judgment of a righteous God, they still adamantly refuse to repent and trust Jesus. Now, will that happen again? Will there be any who are saved? I don't know, but I can say God in his mercy and in his grace ensures that the, the gospel the, is, is declared again. There is this declaration that is again made and all those who reject it, all those who refuse to, at the end of verse 7, worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the waters, they are going to find in this chapter that there is righteous judgment awaiting them. And so let's look at that, the punishment of the wicked in verses 8 through 11. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive in his, his mark in his forehead or his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now this announcement of the fall of Babylon in verse 8 Honestly, it would seem to be hundreds and hundreds of years too late. Babylon has already fallen at this point. Except that, as John writes this, Babylon is not Babylon. And I, I know how strange that is for someone who says he's a literalist to say, it is symbolic of a world system which leads people into wickedness and idolatry. That has been true of Babylon Throughout the history of Scripture. The first time we see it is in Genesis when people gathered together at a place called Babel and intended to exalt themselves above God by building this tower to give them authority over their Creator. Later, it's the city of Babylon, the, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, who begins to influence God's people urging them to worship idols and trust in their military might. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon ultimately comes and lays siege to Jerusalem, right, to carry away the people of God into captivity, into slavery. And God told those captives, look, I'm going to use Babylon to bring judgment on you, but I'm going to one day deliver you out of that bondage. And so while you're there, captive to them, do not worship their false idols. Don't worship their false gods. You're going to be drawn out and delivered from that city. 
Much more will be said about Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, where John describes Babylon essentially as a kind of religious prostitute selling pleasure for profit and even having daughters that she has taught to do the same thing. This reference here in verse 8 sort of anticipates this fuller description that's coming. It's coming down in chapters 17 and 18. But for now, you can see the description that's given as she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It would seem to best understand this as Spiritual adultery, drawing people away from the worship of the true creator God to false gods who are no gods at all. But when we, and when we identify Babylon later, we're going to see it's true. She has caused the world to be, in the description here, intoxicated and addicted to this wickedness. The angel which declares Babylon's destruction or judgment, we would say, on the collective people of the wicked world, is followed in verse 9 by yet another angel proclaiming judgment on the individual sinful people in this wicked world. Those who accepted the mark or engaged in the worship of the Antichrist will will drink the wine of God's wrath, the angel says. They'll suffer the consequences of their rebellion against their creator. I want you to note in verses 8 and 10, look at it. John offers us sort of this interesting contrast, right? In verse 8, there's the description of all those who have been intoxicated by drinking the, the wine of Babylon's fornication. And all those who have done that they will find there is another drink forced on them. In verse 10, it is the wine of God's wrath, the angel says, poured out without mixture. That is God's wrath, undiluted, at full concentrated strength. And it is served in the cup of his indignation or in the cup of his anger. Right? There's, there's no universal salvation in this text. There is certain destruction for all those who would rebel against God and ignore the declaration of the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. The picture is one of absolute torment. Tormented, verse 10 says, with fire and brimstone, the the same elements that God used to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he will use in the everlasting destruction of the wicked. It it describes that they have, verse 11, no rest day or night. There is no moment where this torment and, and punishment is eased. Listen, hell is a real place of real fire and it burns forever. Look at verse 11. The smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. They don't have any rest. The truth of hell is truth that you need to believe. If just the sheer amount of teaching on something matters, then maybe it would surprise you to know that Jesus had at least twice as much to say about hell as he did heaven. In his ministry, when he wanted to make this everlasting destruction clear in some simple and dramatic way, He used the word Gehenna, 
which described this valley that was right outside of Jerusalem's walls. It was a a place of unclean things, a place where where trash, animal carcasses, dead bodies were were thrown and there was there was permanently on fire. Right? He described it as out there the, the worms never stop eating and the fire never stops burning. And so Jesus described hell as essentially being God's eternal burning trash heap where all wicked people belong. Y'all, if not for the grace of God, that's where I belong. Let me add, when we describe hell, as is often said nowadays, and we we sort of want to say it in some theologically correct but softer way, we'll say, well, hell is this place of eternal separation from God. In doing that, we've failed to portray the whole meaning. It is true that Paul says that the eternal suffering is, quote, away from the presence of God. And, but when he says that, it's evident he means that there will be no more opportunity for access, no more opportunity for reconciliation to God. And yet, we understand God is omnipresent, right? David even writes in Psalm 139, he asks, where can I go from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, if you're, you're there. If I made my bed in hell, you're there. John says here in verse 10, this everlasting destruction of the wicked is, quote, in the presence of his holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. If you die in your sins, you will go to a place of everlasting punishment in the fires of hell, separated from any opportunity to be reconciled to God, but with full knowledge that that place of your torment is a creation of God, and your punishment occurs there at his command, under his watchful eye, and serves to bring his justice, eternal glory, as you are rightly punished for your sins. Think about for the saints in John's day as they first read this. In this world, they were facing some of the most horrible and humiliating kinds of persecution. They were being arrested. They were being dragged out into public places. They were being dishonored and dismembered and shamed and suffering. And yet now they have this knowledge that there is a place of comfort. All this anguish that they experienced was temporary, and yet there will be no such comfort for the wicked as they suffer the wrath of God under the watchful eye of God. Now this is more than good enough reason to turn to Jesus in faith. Put your trust in him because the eternal torment of hell is awful. But put your trust in him too because the salvation that he provides is wonderful. When you read this and you know that this is so different than our way of thinking. We think, well, my sin's not that bad. Hell is not what I deserve. Our thinking needs to be turned around. This is what we deserve, which should tell us just how bad our sin is. And when you know that this eternal anguish is what you deserve, but that Jesus, God's Son, came to die in the place of sinners, suffering all of God's wrath, undiluted with any mercy, 
so that you can be saved. Listen, trust him because hell is too awful to endure and trust him because such love is too wonderful to ignore. There's punishment for the wicked. There's also blessing for believers. Verses 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, the Spirit says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. The ultimate end of those who are saved by faith in Jesus is nothing like the destiny of those who have rejected and rebelled against him. Verse 12 says, here is the patience of the saints, or this calls for the patient endurance of the Lord's saints. Not only is there a call for patient endurance, he says there's a call for obedience, right? Them that keep the commandments of God. Not that you're saved by keeping commandments, but that you're saved at the end of verse 12 by faith in Jesus and being saved by faith, then you strive to keep his commandments. All through Christian life, we we are called to this patient endurance and obedience and faith. If you do not endure, it is a sure sign you are not saved. This doesn't mean that a saved person never experiences a a moment of doubt or or lapses into sin. We're we're too frail to have so much confidence in ourselves to say that. But a person who declares faith in Jesus and later leaves that faith or is is popular nowadays in our modern world to use the term, well, they deconstruct or they deconvert such a person does not truly deconvert they only show that they were never converted to begin with the apostle john describes such people in his letters to say that they went out from us because they were not part of us we should add here that though we're called to persevere in the faith The only ability we have to persevere is that the Holy Spirit moves in us so that we are preserved. Whoever believes in Jesus has everlasting life. That's his promise. How long does everlasting life last? It has to last forever or it was not everlasting life. True faith, true life lasts forever. We are saved because of him and we endure because of him. He's the good shepherd who's not going to lose any of his sheep. So if you do not endure, it's a sure sign that you're not saved. If you do not obey, it is a sure sign that you're not saved. Again, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect and that we'll never sin. We're not going to be perfect in this life. But you understand the same Lord Jesus who who said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments, also told his people, if you continue in my word, then you're really my disciples. You're my disciples indeed. Obedience to the Lord Jesus is a mark of Christian faith and continual disobedience is a 
sure sign that genuine faith is not there. So patient endurance is a must. Obedience is a must. And yet faith in Jesus is the root from which both of those things spring. All that we endure, all the ways that we obey, they are an expression of our faith in him. And only people with faith in him can truly know, as John says in verse 13, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth, by the way, is what that says. That is, from now on, Now, while it's true that those who die in faith in Jesus are are blessed whenever that's happened, when this angel says, from now on, that's a pretty sure indication that there are believers on earth at the point that this is taking place. Not only are they blessed, literally happy, that word means, when they die, But what about the endurance and obedience that they went through in their life? Well, the end of verse 13, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them, right? Your your endurance and your obedience, they are not forgotten when this life is over. You'll be blessed in the presence of God and given rest and given reward. Finally, verses 14 through 20, I want you to see the double harvest and... Don't get too excited about that word, finally. I mean, I, I, it's, it's readily obvious we're only about halfway through the text, right? But I'm going to try to make this simple, or at least I'm going to try to allow Jesus to make this simple. Leave, leave your bookmark here in, in Revelation 14, but turn to Matthew 13 for a moment. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is giving some parables of the kingdom. And after the well-known parable of the sower who's gone out and sowed seed in different places, he begins another parable in Matthew 13, verse 24. It says, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in your field? And whence then has it, has it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Right? And so Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like, Wheat and tares. By the way, these, these are things that look alike, but the wheat is valuable. The tares are, are worthless, semi-poisonous like weeds, and they're, they're growing together. And the master of the field doesn't want to destroy both. And so they grow together until they can be harvested in two different collections. One harvested and kept, the other harvested and burned. Now that in itself wouldn't be a 
a, a definitive commentary on Revelation 14, except Jesus explained this parable. Starting later in verse 36, the disciples come and ask him to explain what that means and listen to his explanation. Starting at verse 36, Jesus, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. In other words, explain that to us. Very simple explanation. He, he answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered together and and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus says at the end of the world, there's going to be two great harvests. One of wheat, he says, the saved children of God. The other of tares, the unsaved wicked. And the wicked will be cast into a furnace of fire and the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom as, uh, shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now go back to Revelation 14. And let's read John's vision and see if, starts to sound familiar. Revelation 14, starting at verse 14. And I looked, and behold, on a white cloud, uh, behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle. And gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. This looks a lot like Jesus' parable to the wheat and the tares. Now, I know there are a couple of differences. Like, for example, instead of a furnace of fire in the parable, we get the wine press of God's wrath. And yet, those differences are very easy to explain. The wine press of God's wrath is the means of their physical death of the wicked. And after that physical death, up in verses 10 and 11, they're cast into the, the furnace of fire, right? Fire and brimstone. Their smoke rises up forever. The similarities are far more outstanding, right? There's, here are the angels that Jesus promised. Here's the end of the world. Here are these two harvests. And in this har- these harvests, the wicked are punished. The righteous are blessed. 
my mind, I can't get around Jesus' parable and John's vision being the same event. The simple point of both being, though we might wish for it to be something different, it has never been the purpose of God to remove the righteous out from the world or to remove the wicked away from the righteous. This world at every point in history has been filled with both and they grow together until Jesus comes and this great double harvest occurs. Only then are the wicked and the righteous separated from one another. In verses 14 through 16, John sees Jesus himself coming on a cloud, collecting his people. I do believe that this is the rapture. We'll be collected from the earth. He'll come in the clouds of glory. We'll meet him in the air. We'll be with him. At this same event, there is a harvest of the wicked in verses 17 through 20. In John's vision, he says there are the clusters of the vine of the earth. Her grapes are fully ripe. It's interesting to me that the, the vision of the righteous up in verses 14 through 16, they aren't described as any kind of specific plant or, or fruit, just a harvest to be collected. After the righteous are collected, the wicked are harvested and cast in verse 19, the great winepress of the wrath of God. The visual image John is painting with his words is quite graphic. This is not... Uh, a sanitized industrial wine press. It is a classic first century wine press, a, a, a basin where, where grapes are collected and stomped underfoot until all the juice came out. It would splatter on those who were doing the treading. The juice would pour out of the ductwork that was meant to, to collect it. But John says this is God's wine press. It's the wine press of his wrath. And it isn't grapes that are being trampled. It's people. Verse 20, blood came out of the wine press. And by the way, stomping his wine press is a common Old Testament expression of God executing his wrath on the wicked. Just to give you one example of many, we could point to Isaiah 63 verses 2 through 4. It says, why, is, why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And the answer is, I've, I've trodden the winepress alone. and From the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger. I've trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of the redeemed, my redeemed has come. Right, the question, why are you covered with blood? Well, because I've been treading out my winepress in anger. God describes his wrath as treading a winepress, blood coming out. Not just a little bit, a lot. Verse 20 says, even into the horse's bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. A, a horse's bridle, depending on the size of the horse, is, is roughly about four feet high. And so four feet high for the distance of, in Greek, 1,600 stadia, about 200 miles, the blood flows out of the winepress of God's wrath. And while we're describing this, let's be clear about who's doing the treading. If you want to, you can glance ahead to chapter 19. In Revelation 19, John sees a vision of the Lord Jesus. Starting in verse 11, he's on a white horse, 
His eyes are a flame of fire. His head has many crowns. And he says in verses 13 through 16, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Listen, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who's treading out this winepress? It's the Lord Jesus himself who rightly executes God's wrath against the wicked, who have not obeyed the calling of the gospel. Even more frightening than being cast into the winepress and being pressed to death is that this winepress is the means of physical death and what follows is eternal torment in hell, according to the text. And so you have to ask yourself, where will you be when this great double harvest comes? Are you collected by Jesus to be with Jesus to shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom? Or will you be heaved into the winepress of God's wrath, trampled underfoot of the King of Kings? Are you, in the words of verse 12, a a faithful, enduring, obedient disciple of Jesus? Or are you addicted and intoxicated by the wickedness of this world? Even in this chapter, Right? You remember where it started up in verse 6. Before the destruction comes, the everlasting gospel is proclaimed. Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus for eternal life. Fear God. Give glory to your creator. You know that you've heard the good news of the gospel. You know that you've heard the bad news of your sin and the judgment that's coming. You should trust him because... His wrath is too awful to endure. You should trust him because his love is too wonderful to ignore. You should trust him. 